The Social Good magazine is designed to inspire others to make a difference in their communities. Created by Kristen Tomasino, this show and magazine showcases the stories of people making a positive impact in their neighborhoods and beyond. Whether it's through volunteering, fundraising, or simply lending a helping hand, these individuals remind us that we can all make a difference. The Social Good magazine is the perfect tool for anyone seeking inspiration to get involved in their community. magazine show is talking about different advocacy efforts and different topics that affect lots of people and you know one of those topics is fibromyalgia and crystal and i are both advocates for this because we both experience it and have been formally diagnosed with it you know one of the ways that i actually met crystal was doing fibromyalgia advocacy in 2022. And I also was doing lots of different research on you know, various organizations that were just focused on providing uh, support and solutions and uh, ideas of ways to think about tackling chronic illness in a positive way. And I came across Crystal Kent and you know, she is just, a fireball. Um, she is such an amazing person um, from what she's accomplished in her life. So Crystal, thank you for joining me. I know that the weather's been up and down and so that does affect us fibro warriors at times. And that is a great point to bring up. Um, you know, there were a lot of victories that happened in 2022 for this cause of wellness, and thinking about how we unify our resources to better serve our patient population. Can you tell me a little bit about some of these victories that happened in 2022? I, I am very humbled that you say victories, um, especially because it really is a community effort of a variety of individuals who've made these victories successful. So I can't take the full credit, but um, uh, some great things was, well, first, uh, I was able with uh, team members of Veteran Voices for Fibromyalgia, put out a series of informational educational videos, um, hashtag Team Fibro Reloaded, which are all accessible for free on social media and YouTube. And it was just a wonderful just amazing projects to bring on uh, licensed medical doctors, registered dietitians, uh, certified health and wellness coaches, certified functional medicine uh, coach specialists, and along with promote voices in other communities outside of veteran and fibromyalgia communities where they shared their aspects like dynamics of having uh, particular chronic illnesses such as lupus and fibromyalgia that has a long family lineage and, and why this kind of ties into why we need more specific driven research for fibromyalgia. So uh, yeah, that project, uh, you know, it is a victory, but it, it did not come to fruition without so many people coming together and freely and voluntarily giving their time to participate and be interviewed. So for me, that is, there's lots of things I love, but that was, that was kind of like my baby, like my pet project in a sense, because I just felt it was so important to bring so many voices together, along with licensed medical professionals, just to show 
uh, like the chronic pain community, the fibromyalgia community and veteran community, like there are people invested that want to support us. It sounds like you've made a remarkable team effort of unifying information, resources, so that people know that others are experiencing it. It is real, but great news. You're not alone. There are others out there that are unifying and finding some solutions that can help them uh, with their suffering. What I love what Crystal has you know, highlighted and done here with this team is saying, you know, look, we're going to make sure that this information and people are available 24 seven so that you can get in contact. That's fantastic. So um, way to go team Fibro Reloaded. Let's talk about this. You were, you mentioned, you know, how, um, you know, there's some legislative work and other advocacy work. And, you know, I was a little bit a part of some of that last year helping out, but you guys were really leading the, the forefront on this and the charge, right? And the organization on these ideas about how we can change the game for the American population. Um, you know, this is a fibromyalgia is a global condition. We've seen it in other countries, right? You know, a lot of stuff here we'll be talking while it's fibromyalgia uh, related, kind of more specific to veterans, but just the sidebar, I have my other kind of awareness initiative, the Fibromyalgia Pain Chronicles. And I have individuals from, um, I actually just went recently and counted. So um, I have individuals living with fibromyalgia or a loved one with someone with fibromyalgia or caregiver from uh, 37 countries. I just had some from Malta. I was surprised. I'm like, oh, I got some warriors here and friends now from Malta and Europe. And that was amazing. You're like a global humanitarian too. So your, your efforts and what you're trying to do is really trying to have a global approach. But right now we're focusing, especially like with what's happened with some American leadership, right, in our own backyard. Tell me about what the leadership here in America, what are we trying to change here? One of the greatest things I have been able to observe and be a part of is a lot of grassroots veterans individually coming together to uh, promote awareness and work collaboratively to get some policy changes at the VA or legislation put in place um, to help serve, support, and protect our veterans. And what's great about that too, is that approach we're seeing in the fibromyalgia community over the past few years is that recognizing that we don't have to be this big organization, corporation or entity to uh, invoke change, that we can come together as a coalition and, and bring our individual voices together like a chorus and a choir and amplify everyone's voices. And the other sidebar to that that is beautiful is that it's also one of the most inclusive approaches for advocacy and awareness. Um, a lot of times I see big organizations trying you know, to put out information or awareness or, or uh, make some changes, but then we have these individual advocates and grassroots you know, advocacy initiatives who are not being included. And, and so that's, that's really uh, not being fully diverse and inclusive. And, and when I mean by diverse and inclusive, 
inclusivity is not just based on um, color, age, sex, uh, sexual orientation, or, or you know, gender identification, but also age groups. Um, you know, I know personally through my initiatives and awareness and educational like videos and, and campaigns, pulling in individuals that are under the age of 19 years old, because with fibromyalgia, one to two percent of fibromyalgia sufferers are children and adolescents, along with pulling in men and amplifying their voices. Um, and then on the flip side, in the veteran side, uh, we see a lot more uh, initiatives, awareness campaigns, and legislation advocacy where we're seeing the driving force being predominantly male veterans, which makes sense because as far as female veterans go, uh, we're only 1.8 million in the big pool of the 20 or so million veterans. And then uh, one of the nice things with these legislative and advocacy and awareness initiatives and collaborating with each other is we're able to amplify like those sub communities within our community so that we're giving uh, fair space and time for everybody to uh, contribute and amplify their voices. So I love this. Um, you've got multiple layers to your platform between tools and access and empowerment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we get to the legislative ask. Last year, we we're looking for, you know, a, a number of $50 million in mm -hmm. increased research spend. How did that go? And where are we at with that? Like in 2019, House appropriation committees and funding, it was being speculated it was going to be cut from like 14 million to 12 million. And that put fibromyalgia as the second least funded medical condition to receive funding for research through the National Institutes of Health and the CDC. So some really uh, proactive advocates went to Washington, D.C. in 2019. And then early 2020, right before Washington, D.C. was closed down due to uh, a pandemic. And so from there, I was asked if I would uh, help moving forward with this legislative initiative where we're asking Congress and senators to support us and be our voice in the government and ask for, uh, we came to $50 million last year in 2022. That's what we asked for, um, for research. And you know what happened was in like 2021, we saw the projection of instead of funding being cut to 12 million for fibromyalgia research, it was projected it'd be about 30 million. Then last year we asked for 50 million. And we started also advocating that we have our champions help us make sure that this funding is earmarked for very specific targeted research for fibromyalgia. Because there is research studies out there, but we're seeing a lot of duplication of the same research study being done over and over and over. But none of this is targeting the understanding of what the root cause is and, and how like the mechanisms of the symptoms work in the body. So last year, uh, we took on a lot of meetings as a community, um, meeting with our staffers for congressional leaders and senators, and we were asking for 50 million and asking for that support for it to be earmarked. Now this year, personally, I'm, I'm going to say 100 million, where I'm personally going to ask for 100 million. Um, and that 
we have the support in our government to ensure those funds are being used in a proactive, concise manner um, so that we can start targeting and looking at all these other aspects of fibromyalgia. Because if we can do that, it's going to create a pathway of a variety of different treatment developments, pharmaceutical medications, along with holistic modalities to help individuals living with this illness. You know, one of the big changes from last year, right, has to do with how we, you know, categorize, right, this condition. Um, why don't you help the audience understand a little bit more, you know, about why this is important and what we're asking for? So one of the things with fibromyalgia is there is tangible physical research evidence that there is a neurological component to this medical condition, so much so that we started seeing research coming out around 2012, 2013, like the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital uh, which is an affiliate of Harvard Medical, doing research that found that people with fibromyalgia have small fiber neuropathy damage. And then we saw another research study come out where people with fibromyalgia, the retinal like nerve layer in our eyes degenerated. Then further research, not just in the US, but in other countries found that in the brain, we have some inflammation going on in particular parts of the brain. And all this is very neurologically derivative. And then in 2015, October 1st of 2015, um, the International Classification of Diseases and Disorders reclassified fibromyalgia as a neurological medical condition. Okay, so that is a very broad stroke explanation. And the problem is, under neurological conditions, there's these subcategories, like is it a disorder? Is it a degenerative disease? Is it an autoimmune condition? And that's where we're at. We know it's neurological. We got that classification, but now we need to advocate for our governmental officials, uh, organizations, whatnot, what have you, medical entities and tax-driven health institutes that are funded with taxpayer dollars to do that research to find out what subcategory it is. And once we can do that, then we'll not only have better understanding, but we can identify the appropriate medical specialty to treat people with fibromyalgia. Because what happens is we kind of get bounced around from specialties within the medical field from neurology, which I was seen by a neurologist. I was also seen by three uh, rheumatologists and pain management, sometimes pain and rehabilitation medicine specialists. And so that's, that's kind of the disconnect. Yeah, these titles that you just said, right, these are names of roles that people hear all over the country, but they may not understand what the right roles are to have on a complete health team. And sometimes you need, you know, certain roles to work together, right, and to communicate to one another to create treatment paths that make sense for you know, patients. And so I think what we're trying to do here, right, is say, look, there's areas that, you know, this community has identified that can really make a difference in the care, as well as the identification of people that suffer within this class um, to get access. You've been pretty, um, again, busy, <laughs> um, helping, raising the flag, sharing information, um, there was a huge win for you last year in the state of Ohio. Um, why don't you tell us about uh, the good news and uh, what you were able to work out there with the governor? 
Uh, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, he issued a proclamation declaring May 12th as Fibromyalgia Awareness Day in the state of Ohio. And Ohio is the third state to actually issue a proclamation. Um, and, and that's very, uh, a lot of people might not understand why that's important, but what it is, it's like an official state level recognition that this is a condition that needs more public awareness and support. Um, especially when you look at the numbers, as far as with Ohioans, um, how many people were affected and how many veterans in Ohio. Um, and, and so having kind of like, for lack of a better term, it's almost like a stamp of approval, you know, or a stamp of legitimacy. And when you, a lot of people focus on federal level stuff, but your state level is just as important because like the more governors you have that recognize it, that could help within that state open up funding or major medical institutions shift funds to focus on fibromyalgia. Um, I live outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So we have uh, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. We have University Healthcare System. We have Metro Health and, and plenty of VAs. And a lot of these entities do their own internal research. So having that declaration made formally and legally, this also puts this on these medical institutes radar. And they might be like, oh, we should look into this, especially because there's just this X amount of people in Ohio that have fibromyalgia um, and veterans. And, and most veterans actually receive private healthcare uh, nationally versus going to the VA. So that's another thing that helps break uh, some stereotypes is that everyone believes that veterans, all veterans go to the VA for healthcare. And there's about 20 million of us. And, and back in 2019, the VA that year only served 8.92 million veterans. Then there's Veterans such as myself, which I call, we, we do hybrid healthcare, where I go to the VA for some things and I go to private healthcare for other things. So that is something that is a major highlight is saying, oh, we also have veterans and these other groups of people that you would think traditionally would be going to certain systems only for their healthcare, but they're also going to private healthcare. So, you know, these awareness things on a local, state, and federal level helps entities individual society and medical facilities and researchers recognize that, oh, okay, let's look into this. And they shift their funding internally to do some research, or maybe they hire more staff to focus on treating people with fibromyalgia. That's, that's exciting what you just said, you know, that there's these different models that veterans are using to get access to care. Some of them are a hybrid model, which this is important because we're talking about supply and demand. Let's be real. Not everywhere in this country is going to have access to resources. If I put you in the middle of the desert, Crystal, um, in some remote place, is it likely that we're going to have access all the time, sometimes to specialty types of care? And that answer typically is no. What I'm hearing, right, is that, you know, in the Cleveland area, there are a number of options. There are a number of medical groups that are established um, doing good work already and trying to assist people that need care. Because as we think about the new economy, and I like to talk about the new economy in the Social Good Magazine, Volume 2, Crystal Kent is in it, sharing her thoughts. 
um, she talked about like the access, right? And, you know, the need for there to be more staff, right, to help. Um, one of the things she just talked about was how a hybrid model has helped her in some instances, right, get access when the VA didn't necessarily have what she had possibly, right? Um, so I think that, that this is an exciting um, opportunity to create new jobs. And for people who are looking, especially within the college industry, what jobs should I get into, high school and others? We're talking about preventative care as well as um, also, you know, chronic illness care. And this is kind of a new economy where when we think about how can we do the right things moving forward to help others, right? In these types of amazing industries, um, this seems like it could be a bright spot. And I think about, you know, how we can make it better. And the work that Crystal Penn is doing is really saying, you know, look, um, there's some things that if we had a little bit more staff would improve the lives of veterans. And I, I think you said, what was that, 20, 20 million, 22 million? Was that the number I heard? Yeah, there's there's approximately uh, 20 million veterans currently. Um, and 1.8 million of them are female veterans. The, wow. and you bring up a very great point when you're talking about an economic model, because in healthcare, it is now being run as a systematic business model. And people find that frustrating. I said, look, these are the cards that were dealt. Let's, well, let's work smart, not hard, and actually find ways to... Uh, let these entities know that they're missing out on a lot of major money <laughs> because they're not helping patients that have harder time accessing healthcare. And, and so let's let's think of this in an innovative way. Take out the word healthcare, take out medical. It's being run like a business model. And what do businesses want to do? They want to reach more people. Reaching more people increases revenue. Increasing revenue though, because we have a lot of businesses from banking to the automotive industry to healthcare is that when they're increasing their revenue, believe it or not, a lot of those entities are gonna put about 20% and shift it to research or shift it to help support uh, those people in our communities that are not getting the access. So how do we, how do we have that conversation? And, and one of those things is we come up with ideas of innovation in healthcare. And there's so many barriers for so many groups with that need access to healthcare, not just veterans, not just people with fibromyalgia, but a variety of medical communities. And I've worked for organizations in the mental health fields where we actually provided community health supports and community mental health supports. And we took the teams to the neighborhoods, the communities. We had mobile vehicles that are like, they're like RVs that are trick, tricked out to become like a mini medical satellite where we're going out and outreaching these individuals that have no ability to access care in a timely manner. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things when we're thinking about advocacy, we can't just say, you need to provide more support. You need to have more doctors. We need to also come to the table with ideas and suggestions. 
they might not be good ones. Okay, I've had some bad ideas, but hey, an idea, I'm not the type of person to say, this is a problem, fix it. I'm the type of person that says, this is an issue. Here are some possible solutions from a patient perspective that would help my community, would help me. How are we serving uh, Native Americans on reservations that are veterans? How are we serving those individuals that are in rural areas? The other thing is urban areas. People assume that when you live in an urban area that you have easier access to healthcare because it's a shorter distance, but not everybody has a car. Many people are relying on public transportation. They don't have daycare for their kids, so they got to bring all their children with them, you know, or an elderly parent they're taking care of that might have Alzheimer's or a chronic condition that they need oversight. And all these are barriers that with some proactive innovation, innovative solutions, we might be able to remove those and then people have more access to healthcare. So our healthcare system is, is based on a model system on a nine to five company entity. And we expect patients to rearrange their entire schedule or, or find ways to overcome barriers to access healthcare. And it really needs to be the opposite. We, we, I understand them running in on a business model, but it really needs to be a human services model and identifying those barriers, not just talking about it, but working with the communities to alleviate those barriers so that more people can access healthcare. What's important in this discussion is how we look at how we let people know that there's resources out there. And then, you know, there's this project that you've been doing to kind of communicate differently, right? In addition to all the other content, why don't you tell me about this amazing documentary uh, that you've been a part of and are uh, helping uh, support? Sure. And again, this is a collaboration of a variety of people and, and um, to highlight the power of social media and social uh, networking platforms is I connected with a retired Navy veteran who is the co-founder of a film production company called Brain Dagger Films. And just through chit chat and, and saying, you know, these are some of the things that I do. These are some of the things that we're passionate about. These are some of the things that, you know, we want to tackle. And so that co-founder is Mo Taylor of Brain Dagger Films, who is the retired Navy veteran. And, and obviously I'm an Army veteran, so we, we are very acutely aware of the needs of the veteran community, especially like dispelling uh, stigmas and stereotypes and misperceptions uh, about invisible illnesses. And so as we were networking on social media, we came up with this idea of, you know, doing a documentary that highlights uh, the different aspects of being a military veteran living with invisible conditions and the unique experiences um, that veterans experience living with invisible medical conditions and the added layers or barriers of, of getting the supports that we need. So uh, Mr. Taylor and I kicked back a variety of ideas and then he was like, write up the concept. And I was like, for a documentary uh, about the basically battle a veteran contends with after getting out of the service, having to go to war again to overcome all these stereotypes, stigmas, and lack of access 
for healthcare for invisible medical conditions. So I said, okay, I'll get that to you. I forgot what I said, but it was like literally in the week. And then uh, Mr. Taylor was like, oh, this is great. And then I said, okay, well, what do you want to focus on? Like, do you want this to be more informational? I can pull in veterans who would be great for this. And he was like, go for it. So uh, released today um, is a documentary collaboration with Brain Dagger Films about the uh, veterans and the scourge of invisible illnesses and all the how it's kind of like we've already done our battles and served our country. Now we're battling again to get the recognition, the understanding, validation, support and healthcare that we need for you know a variety of medical conditions that are invisible. And so I asked um, a couple of my really good friends and fellow advocates and, and team members if uh, they would collaborate on this. And the one person is Brian Talley, who is uh, the driving force behind the legislative uh, bill, Talley bill, that was signed into law in January of 2021. He's also now the you know founder of Today with Talley podcast. And he's a Marine veteran that um, out of no fault of his own, ended up experiencing some uh, pretty, uh, extensive medical negligence at the VA and, and, and sharing his journey and, and all the obstacles he overcame. So I asked if he would participate um, to share his personal experiences. And then I also asked a new data who is a combat army veteran and she's also part of the veteran voices for fibromyalgia team, um, if she would participate and she did. Um, and just like a quick little thing there is that in most like documentaries or educational pieces about veterans, it's predominantly male veterans you see. So I wanted to flip the script where we, you know, we're interviewing three people and I was one of the three. Um, so in this, we had two female veterans and one male veteran, um, just to promote the importance of recognizing that female veterans um, need the support and understanding as well. And our, our needs are, are unique, but also at times different from male veterans. And then uh, Brian Stavali, he uh, narrated uh, some of the informational pieces in this documentary. So really, this is kind of like a uh, five-person team that came together to amplify uh, the voices of veterans living with different invisible medical conditions and the barriers that we contend with and the things that would, if we could basically address and, and resolve would make it better for veterans to access healthcare and get the medical support and understanding we need, um, along with highlighting the importance of why we need uh, support systems, along with how the role of social media plays in creating those support systems for veterans living with invisible disabilities. Awesome. You have been super busy and, you know, one, I just applaud you, you know, again, you're suffering yourself and you find some of the space and the time to give others um, to learn. So thank you for your leadership on these different projects. Um, you know, when I think about social good, again, you know, Crystal Kent is an example of that. That's why I've included her in the Social Good Magazine show. 
And, you know, again, when you want to learn more about what she's thinking about, um, there's concrete solutions that we're putting together in this magazine to help others in our communities. Um, it's really meant to have kind of a long-term picture about what could we do to listen to some of these advocates like Crystal, who are really in the trenches. They know a lot of the details. What could we do differently? And, you know, we've been through a lot in our country, but I think it's important that we continue to try to be a leader, right, in taking care of our own people, providing opportunities for jobs and ways in which we can um, help others reduce suffering. And at the same time, you know, how do we make these new paths forward? Um, so, you know, from a preventative medicine side that people are really, you know, continuing to keep doing well, right? And making progress. And that's a big deal um, for some folks, right? And um, one of the big projects that I'm working on as well for veterans um, has to do, you know, with homeless, right? And how do we help get people to shelter? And, you know, safety and security is a big thing. And, you know, here in Los Angeles, we've had a number of challenges. Um, we have one of the largest veteran populations in the country. And there's things that we can be doing, um, you know, potentially differently, right, um, as a community to support our veterans. And so I think that, you know, having leaders like Crystal Kent, who are really our subject matter experts, right, um, having them on my show and, and these different magazines and podcasts and these different ways that we're all communicating out, it really um, is purposeful, right, Crystal? We're, we're trying to be purposeful in this act of social good to help others. Do you agree? Uh, pur purposeful intent with purposeful actions. And, and I honestly applaud you uh, being out in the trenches yourself, helping our veterans who are experiencing homelessness. And, and just a little quick tidbit is that while there's 20 million veterans, right? And they're predominantly male veterans. The interesting piece when you look at uh, population ratio percentage risk is that female veterans and LBGTQ veterans are actually at higher risk of being homeless than their male counterparts. It's not to say it's not a crisis with male veterans, but again, it comes down to these systems not providing the supports for everyone, every sub community within the community of veterans. And there's other countries that have declared homelessness as a healthcare crisis. And once they did that, it shifts funds. So I talked about this earlier, when certain levels of government recognize something formally and officially, what happens is funds get shifted to address that, whether internally or from a governmental perspective or federal you know, aspect. And so when we do that, some of these countries that declared um, homelessness as a healthcare crisis, they were able to reduce um, homelessness in general up to 70%. Wow. And that's because they declared it a healthcare crisis, a health crisis. And when you do these things, it's again, it's like legitimizing it. It's saying we, we as a whole, as a society, as a nation, as a global um, citizenship, we need to recognize this as a crisis. And once you do these things, that's where funding and, and support 
um, comes in. The other thing is in the United States, what frustrates me is I haven't looked in a while, but uh, when we were going through um, the worst of the shutdowns due to a pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands. So I started going through all the nonprofits that were registered with GuideStar that were providing supports and services and funding for veterans who were homeless. And I stopped counting at 200 because I got frustrated because I said, okay, at about 207, I said, I'm done. This is just in the United States. All these nonprofits and looking at how much you know resources and funding they had. And I thought, you know what, if they came together nationally, I bet you we could uh, dramatically decrease um, homelessness amongst veterans if they came together and pulled their skill sets, resources, funding, and and uh, their experts in different areas serving this veteran population. So I, I just, you know, that's that's just me. I get kind of nerdy like that, and I do this research, and I'm like, hmm. So there's a, a huge opportunity here, Crystal period, right, to, to unify, to do things differently, to allocate resources. There's process that exists, and it works in some areas somewhat, and in some areas it doesn't because it may not be executed, right? And so I think that, you know, what the whole point of this show is how we share best practices, learnings rapidly, and get this information to the people that are operating on the ground, Look, everybody's out there trying to help and do things the best they can. But the thing that we always talk about, especially those in the chronically ill community, is you know how you use your energy is very important. And so, you know, as we wrap up here, um, you know, thank you, Crystal, for being on and sharing your thoughts again for part two. And um, this has just been enlightening to listen to the victories that you've experienced with the team. Um, and, you know, the new uh, resources that are available, I just see, you know, optimistic, um, you know, opportunities here really for us to increase research and get people realizing that, look, it's okay. There's some folks that have experienced what you're experiencing. You're not alone. There's resources. You got to do work, right? You got to mm -hmm. do the work. Um, but there are things that, that you can connect with that can potentially help in our communities. So um, thank you, Crystal, for the time. Again, check out uh, her website. Where I'm going to have the contact information available. And also watch the new documentary. Let's support some veterans. These folks are getting together to share this information because it's important to our communities. There's 20 million plus veterans out there that I think this message should be shared with. So Crystal, thank you for your time. Thank you for what your team does. And uh, thank you for your service, ma'am. I, I personally just really appreciate you. So thank you, ma'am. The Social Good Magazine show is produced by Tomasino Media LLC and hosted by Kristen Tomasino. The Social Good Magazine show is a beacon of hope for global communities filled with inspiring stories that illuminate pathways to success. By sharing transformational concepts and taking action-oriented steps towards progress, we can collaborate on reducing suffering together and enjoying the journey along the way. So let's use this magazine and show as our roadmap and opportunity to guide each other in discovering victory over adversity.